Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. My name is Simon Carley and today we're going to be publishing the audio from St. Emlyn's Live. One of the presentations there was actually one that I did on five strategies to improve your resuscitations. And the idea behind this was that when you come to a conference, you really want to have something totally tangible that you can take away and actually do. So something that you can actually take back to your departments next week institute make patient care better or make trainee care better or or just generally improve the circumstances and so this is a real focus on stuff which costs no money which is dead easy to do which is evidence-based in parts at least but which you can do you could do this all of this next week and improve the quality of the resuscitations in your department so listen in and of course remember to visit the blog remember to listen to the other podcasts and we will be releasing more of these audios and the videos and more background information on the blog from St. Helens Live over the year hope to see you again in 2019 right so this talk has evolved since we originally thought about doing it when I originally had the idea of what we'd spend 20 minutes talking about it would be on the latest and the greatest evidence around emergency medicine and critical care and how to make the recess room save more lives and do funky stuff in the recess room that's where we started out but after a couple of things a couple of things happened the first is that we're actually going to talk about quite a few of those things in the other talks during the day so Sal's already talked about ACLS we're talking about um, trauma stuff later on so that kind of innovation is going to be covered elsewhere, so we didn't want to reproduce too much. And the second reason is that um, Lydia, um, Linda Dykes, who um, is out in Bangor, um, she and I had a conversation after one of the big international conferences, I think it was Smack, and she said, you know, it was a great conference, I had a really good time, but what I didn't have was a page in my notebook which said that, do you know what, next week I'm going to go back to my department and I'm going to do this. So there was some really sort of airy-fairy stuff that just we can't do. So not everybody here is going to go back and start an ECMO programme next week. It's just not going to happen. Most of us are going to be ECNO, and that's fine. (laughs) But that's such an old joke, sorry. Um, But what we need to do is to do stuff which we can make a difference with. And that's what I'm going to try and do over the next 20 minutes. So I went out for some collective wisdom on this and I went out and I spoke to people who I think know about resuscitation around the world. And I spoke to quite a few different people. So I um, got in touch with Scott Weingar and uh, Nathan, who's in New York, Chris Hicks from Canada, um, who's a brilliant sort of human factors guy, Cliff Reed. I'm sure you know Cliff Reed from Sydney. Um, Yuri Udanov, who's a really fantastic emergency physician from Paris. Um, all the St. Emlyn's team, the teaching co-op team, a whole bunch of other people. And... What came back to me, and I asked them a very simple question, said, if you wanted to improve the quality of resuscitation in your departments, what would you do? And actually, when I first asked the question, I was expecting them to come back with something like do Reboa or something like that, or do something, or do this. And that's not what came back, and it's not what I believe is going to make a difference either. What came back was about how we organise ourselves, how we do things in the emergency department. So if I ask you that question, the same one, If you had one thing that you think could make a difference to the outcomes and the quality and the process in your recess room and you wanted to do it in your department, what would it be? And then just turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think that is. Um, I'm now going to give you the five that we came up with. And I'm going to use a little bit of a model here. We'll roughly use this about what we're talking about, why it's important, and then most specifically, how do you do it? Because ideas are great, but the practicalities of actually making it happen on the ground are what makes a difference. So none of these are in, involve shiny kit. None of them involve any more investment than a piece of paper and a bit of time. Okay? So that's 
everybody in this room can achieve every single one of these, and it will promise you it'll make a difference based on not a lot of evidence, but what I believe. Okay? <laughs> Fine. Number one, ZPS. Have you come across this? You might have done. This is the zero-point survey. The zero-point survey is based on the idea that your first contact with a patient is not the first time that you see the patient. In virtually every setting that you are involved in, you have knowledge of the patient before you actually make that first physical contact. If you're in pre-hospital care, it's when you're dispatched. If you're in the emergency department, it's when the standby phone goes. If you're in hospital, it's when you're running to the cardiac arrest. But unless it's you having the cardiac arrest, which is possible, then you have no warning at all, then unless it's physically you, there is time to do stuff. And those are golden minutes. Golden, golden minutes that we need to really heavily value and work with. Now, some of you will be doing this already, and the ZPS, the Zero Point Survey, is just a way of describing and articulating what many of you will be doing. But isn't that good? Having something which articulates a system allows us to teach it to others and to be consistent. So, what is it? Zero Point Survey, mentioned very briefly this morning by Natalie, it's this model. And basically, it's the step-up process. So, an awareness of self, the team, the environment before you get contact with the patient. And then the patient, the update, and the priorities after that. And now actually, in this little bit of the talk, because we're going to talk about other things later on, I'm just going to focus on what's the pre-resuscitation phase. Because this is the area we've made big impact on in our department through simulation and through feedback. So, what does it mean? It means that you get a call through on a standby phone. Maybe it's a 30-year-old cardiac arrest who's collapsed whilst on a teaching course in central Manchester, and they're expected in your department in the next... 10 minutes, they've had uh, bystander CPR because apparently there were loads of people around who really wanted to give it a go. <laughs> and their initial rhythm was VF. They've been shocked once, they had a ROSC, then they've gone back into cardiac arrest and they're coming to you. Now, typically what happened in our department would be the preparation would people would set up a bay and they'd allocate some roles. And that would kind of be it. But actually, if you dig into that, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can do. So just in yourself... <coughs> Are you fed, watered? Do you have an empty bladder? Are you cognitively able to cope with that? Is that the um, Hall of the Mountain King? I think it is, isn't it? Um, are you cognitively ready to deal with that? A 30-year-old with VF cardiac arrest? This group of people? Toxicology, probably. But um, it could be other things as well. Um, but those are the sort of things that would be going through your mind. Am I prepared for this? Do I know it? If it was a more abnormal cardiac arrest, so maybe a one-year-old and you don't do a lot of peds, then is this time to go out and check what's going on? Do you need to go and look at Google? Do you need to have a look at your protocols now? You can prepare, and you can probably predict, can't you, what's going to happen. This is not going to be a short arrest. You're not going to be stopping after five minutes. So what other things do we need to think about? We need to think about the team, and you're going to appoint a team leader. I'm not going to insult you by thinking you're not going to do that. But then we need to think about who's going to do what. And preparation is about not just allocation of roles, but assessment of competence. And we have a big thing going on in our department, so um, are you happy to do the DFib? Yeah, you're happy, great. Have you ever used a DFib before? No. Um, <laughs> have you used this DFib? No. Have you ever worked? Do, do you work here? Um, the, the general conversation is, are you, we all start this, don't we? Are you happy? And yeah, I'm happy. Doctors are particularly bad at this. Nurses are better. That's very tribal. I don't do tribalism very often, but most doctors will say, yeah, I'm happy to do anything, even if they've got no idea what they're doing. <laughs> But they'll give it a whirl. So we've changed the way. To, are you happy to do this? It's fine. Have you done this one before? Have you done it in reality? Do you know what you're doing? Do you need any help or support? 
that makes a difference. It really makes a big difference. And the classic is defibs. People think they know how to use defibs, but they don't. Particularly rotating staff. The permanent staff, your senior nurses, bet they know what they're doing. And then briefing, getting a shared mental model about what's going to happen and predicting what's going to go to happen. So when I take that 30-year-old who's been in VF once, ROSC, VF, again, what's going through your mind? It's churning through, isn't it, about toxicology, about abnormal um, electrical pathways. Do they have a previous history of something else? Is this a, a patient with uh, congenital heart disease? All of those things are bouncing through your heads. You need to stop and share that. As a team, not the doctors on their own or the nurses on their own, but the whole damn group. And again, if you want to play this game in sim, just get, like, allow somebody to set up for a, a mock cardiac arrest and then go around the room and ask the individual people, what do you think is happening? What do you think is our biggest priority when this patient arrives? And what do you think your role is? And unless you've had a good team briefing, it's all over the shop. And then we talk about environment. Do you have enough space? Do you have the kit? We can predict here, can't we? It's going to be long. So are we going to use mechanical CPR? Probably we are, if we've got it available. Do we have um, an echo machine? by the side of the bed. Is it plugged in? Is it charged up? Is it turned on? Do we have basic data in it already? What's the likelihood that we're going to have to refer to additional protocols? Do we have those by the end of the bed? We're not going to cope with an LMA in this patient. If they're coming in with an LMA, they're going to need early intubation. So where's the intubation kit? And there's a difficult airway trolley at the end of the bed. All of those things can happen before the patient arrives. So use of this ZPS explicitly will make a difference. <laughs> Practice it in SIM. It genuinely works. Point number two, so that was one, uses FPS. Number two, 10 and 10. Some of you who particularly who work in pre-hospital care will be familiar with this. Um, have you come across this concept? Some of you have, some of you haven't. 10 and 10 simply means 10 seconds every 10 minutes. So we talked about having a shared mental model in the ZPS, that you have to have this idea that we're all on the same page. The problem is resuscitation does not follow a linear predictable path. It's chaotic in the mathematics sort of sense. So a small event has profound effects on what's going on. So when the patient comes in and somebody tries to induce them with metraminol or kefiroxim as the induction agent, that is not a predictable event, but does happen, and then you're all over the place. So that's an extreme version, but all resuscitations change. So every 10 minutes, a maximum period of time of 10 minutes, you need to stop the team and reform and rebrief and reprioritize and reallocate what needs to be done. Now, 10 in 10, why is it 10 in 10? Because it sounds good. It could be 30 in 5. I don't really mind. But the point is you should be doing that at least every 10 minutes within the first hour of the resuscitation process. Very easy to do. Just do it. Fine? So you can do that next week. It costs nothing to stop and take time to brief everybody again. I recognize some people on this side. Um, who are in the audience. Right, third, peer review. We talked about this morning, didn't we? Um, in Natalie's talk about peer review. Um, you know this guy. He's quite good at tennis. Is that true? Um, he's really good at tennis. Um, does he have a coach? So, do you have a coach? So you're better at medicine than Roger Federer is at tennis, because you don't need help. <laughs> Uh, that's really crap logic. Don't explore it too far. <laughs> but I'm just using it to make a point. Um, he's really good. Another point is that we, we're going to talk about feedback. If you're doing the teaching course after this, we're going to talk about feedback in more depth in the next few days. Um, and we're going to, but I'll give you a little brief thing about what I mean by feedback. There's actually three sorts of feedback in the world, okay? Appreciation, coaching, and uh, evaluation. Now, appreciation is just, you're doing a great job, well done. That's not really effective feedback. It's not going to make you a good person, a better 
doctor or nurse or paramedic, it's going to make you feel good. And Roger Federer has fans. That's good. But they don't make him a better player. You can have evaluation. Now, in sport, evaluation is pretty easy because you know whether you win or lose. Win or lose the game. In medicine, it's harder. And Nat talks about ways that we need to follow up our patients and find out what happens. But what I'm really interested in is the coaching element. Because coaching is how you improve your personal performance. But how? How many of you here have actually got a coach that you pay for? How many of you have an NHS um, system that, co- that provides a coach for you as a resuscitation doctor or nurse or paramedic? Okay, just me then. Um, I don't <laughs> either. And the point is we don't have that luxury. But what we do have is almost always the ability to bring somebody else into the room and to watch what you do. And this is live. It can happen on any day of the week. So this is John Butler, one of our um, resuscitation, um, one of our ICU and ED consultants who's come in with a coffee, obviously. And he's not actually involved in the resuscitation. But what he's doing is observing what's going on. Now, we originally started doing this, and we do it intermittently. We don't do it as often as we should, because we thought that it would improve the person who's being watched. So if I'm the TTL, trauma team leader, and Craig there is watching, he's going to give me some feedback and make me a better doctor. And there is some of that. That does happen. Because he's got a wider view of what's going on. He's got much better situational awareness. And he can make judgments that are based on... um, He can make judgments which are based on a much wider view of the world. I have no idea how good I am. Because when I judge myself, I'm a total narcissist. I think I'm brilliant. And I'm only viewing it from the perspective of what I already know. So how can I ever know what I don't know? Craig can do that, and he can give me feedback. But more than that, Craig can see what I do and learn from me. And we actually found, when we, when we did this originally, that the person who was watching learnt more than the person who was watched. Because they actually saw more of what was going on. Does this cost money? No. There's some structured feedback forms which are based around simulation feedback. We can put those on the website and you can have a look at those. But actually you can do it as a conversation. But, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? In-situ sim is a good way of doing this. And we've had problems with it. Do you, does everybody do in-situ simulation? Okay, it's, it's quite difficult to find time, isn't it? Because, you, you know, it's a busy department and stuff like that. Well, basically, you can do this as in-situ simulation feedback, but essentially it's real patients. So there's never an excuse not to do in-situ sim. You just do it with real people. But you get somebody in to do the feedback. Does that make sense? Costs you nothing, makes a huge difference, because the own, the, you do not know how good you are Everybody around you knows how good you are. So when you walk through the department, you're in a world of illusion, but everybody knows where your blind spots are, just to make you feel slightly paranoid when you go back to work. (laughs) Right, point number four. I've got two more. Fly the patient. Now, I do not generally like analogies between the aviation industry and medicine. For all the reasons that are out there, it doesn't make a lot of sense to emergency medicine. But there are a few things that do. And this is something I picked up from a couple of friends of mine. Trevor Dale, who runs a trainability, is a BA flight uh, training captain, used to be. And Johnny Padden, who's an um, instructor and lead instructor with Virgin Airways. And they talk about how they manage difficult, complex se- um, scenarios on the um, aircraft when things go wrong. And you may be familiar with the mnemonic aviate, navigate, communicate. In other words, when something goes bad on an airplane, the first thing you do is make sure that the airplane doesn't fly out the sky before you work out where you are and then what you're going to do about it. This makes sense. Now, Sal was talking earlier, and I didn't hear all of his talks, I had to go out, but he talked about this massive cognitive load that we have sometimes in something like a cardiac arrest 
where we've got a cycle of keeping the patient alive, because that's the life support element of it. But at the same time, we're also trying, and that's the operational thing, going around the cycles, making sure the adrenaline's been given, making sure the CPR's been doing. Is the CPR good quality good? Does this person need a rate? Are we doing adrenaline on the next cycle? I'm not entirely sure. How much energy do we lose on the last one? Is that defibrillation pad in the right position? Not entirely sure. That line looks a bit dodgy. Not sure if I should change that for a central line or do something else. That's just running the patient. The whole sort of stuff is, well, actually, why is this 30-year-old in cardiac arrest? Is this one I should be thrombolizing? Now have a look at that echo in a bit more detail. I need to just take a time out and just have a look at that echo that we recorded on that last pulse check. Not a pulse check. Um, <laughs> and it, is that actually RV dilatation, or is it just that this is, a fa- this is just a cardiac arrest heart? Do you see what I mean here? There's a split between flying the patient, keeping them alive and the strategic direction. And so what we've done now in in things like cardiac arrest is we will hand over the, you just fly the patient, keep them going, whilst I step out. And that needs to be somebody competent. So in this situation, we've got Sarah here, who is uh, one of our senior nurses, who is running the ALS algorithm. And Fareed, who sat at the side as the senior doctor, who's stepping back and thinking, actually, what the hell is going on? So principle number four, in complex situations, get one group of people to fly the patient and one person to think about where the hell you're going. Principle number five is debriefs. We all debrief, yeah? All the time, any significant case you debrief. Hang on a minute. Nobody's agreeing with me, which is a bit unfortunate and really disappointing. Thank you, you liar. Actually, no, you probably do, because the pre-hospital services do this brilliantly. They are superb at doing it. But in the emergency department, we're rubbish. We all know it's a good idea. Debriefing is fantastic, but we don't do it. And there's lots of reasons why. You know, we can never get everybody back in the same room. Actually, so what? Do it with the people who are there. Get over that one. And then it takes too much time, and we're not sure what to do, and it can become a bit of a rambling conversation. It doesn't have a structure. So can we improve that? Well, we can. And we looked at several models over the year. We used to use something called the info model. And now we're thinking about doing... So this is a complex uh, uh, perimortem caesarean section uh, simulation with lots of different people, lots of debrief that needs to go on that. And all these people are going to go off in different directions. It's hard. You need something which is achievable. And this is the best that we've seen so far. It's developed by Craig Walker and colleagues. I'm going to mag it up in a minute. Um, From Scotland, from Edinburgh... Is stop five. The principle being that pretty much every scenario, you can take five minutes with the people who are still there to take time to just very quickly go through some stuff. What Craig suggests, and I think is a good idea, is a safety check. Is everybody, is everybody safe? Are they okay? And then run through, if yes, we are going to do a debrief. It is going to take five minutes. It's not designed to upset anybody. It's anonymised as best we can. Um, You're welcome to participate, but you don't have to do it. It's only going to take five minutes, folks. And then run through four things. Brief summary. Things that went well. Where can we improve? And points to action responsibilities. And they record those on anonymous form, which then goes to their clinical governance um, service. So it loops into the audit, which Nat talked about this morning. And what do you do it in? Just on the top line there. The most important thing there is you can do it on whatever you want. So if you choose to do it, you do it. But things like major trauma, cardiac arrests, um, anything that comes in with a pre-hospital team, you should be doing it. All that takes is enthusiasm, effort, and a piece of paper. You can do that. 
And the point about which ones do you do it, well, you know, our world is covered from rubbish stuff where things go wrong and awesome stuff where it goes brilliantly. If you only review where it's exceptional, that's not where you learn. You learn in the middle bit. You learn in the routine. And that's what our pre-hospital services do so well, actually. And we should do better in emergency medicine. So, final thoughts. Five things to take away. All free, all can be done next week, all will make a tangible difference, and I promise you they will if you embed these over the next three to six months. Zero-point survey, dead easy. Ten and ten, dead easy. Peer review, a little bit more tricky, but go for it. You're, no be- you're not better at medicine than Roger Federer is at tennis. It's true. Think about this concept of flying the patient and dis- devolving the responsibility for operationally keeping the patient alive and strategically, where the hell are we going? You don't have the cognitive bandwidth, I don't, to do both of those things well, so split them. And then finally, hot debriefs. Everybody loves a debrief. You can do it in five. Thank you very much for your time. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the block and the podcast have grown and now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free open access medical education. Thank you for your time. (music) 